This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live, a show where I pluck interesting and chaotic people from the world and drag them in front of a camera for a chat. It's a slightly mad idea, definitely a little dangerous, and even more entertaining for me because I don't give my producers a script. I quite like the idea of them trembling behind the camera lens, clutching their headphones. Instead of monologuing at you, I am going to introduce you to our first guest, who has very generously offered to trial me. Uh, with a career as illustrious and exceptional as his, it is difficult to know where to start in describing it. We will simply introduce him as one of the most courageous, entertaining, and musically talented hosts in the world, albeit regrettably in jazz. He is, of course, the great and <laughs> recently resurrected Mark Stein. Mark, welcome. <laughs> Hey, my pleasure, Alexandra, and congratulations on this show, and it couldn't happen to a more deserving person. I hope it runs for 30 years. <laughs> you're, you're far too kind, Mark. Now, before we get started, you have legions of Australian fans, millions if my uh, Twitter inbox is anything to go by. Can you give them a brief update on just what happened to you? Like, should Australians put their differences with Macron aside and uh, uh, put all that whole backward overpriced <laughs> submarine thing to one side and say thank you to the French health system for your continued presence in the world? Yeah, they have to charge so much for submarines because they're paying uh, so much for my health care. I had a heart attack in France and I, I was within, according to the lovely nurse I reached just in time, I was within 15 minutes of death. And I cannot fault uh, the treatment I received, uh, even unto the hospital food, which uh, as my beloved daughter pointed out, she goes, hey, dad, the food in this hospital is better than in any New Hampshire restaurant, which is the state I happen to reside in. And I'm not going to say whether that's true or not, uh, but it's certainly uh, the, I, I'm so grateful for the French medical treatment uh, I received. I, 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 even though he's a sinister, dinky, globalist, metrosexual, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm holding off on Macron for just a, a couple 
couple of weeks. I'm so grateful to him. Yes, well, there's a lot to criticise about Macron, but if he has you still sitting here with us, then um, we're going to give him a bit of leeway. And look, and we're going to talk about Ofcom and the matrix of regulation castrating the news industry. But before we get too far into the nightmare of British media that you have just survived, there's been a, uh, a new list of harmful terms published in Canada, no surprise. And this mob, the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, they call themselves the EEB mm. Language Project, mm. wants to outline a path for identifying and revising harmful term terminology. And it sort of comes with an author, and this is a new word, I'm sure, an author positionality statement. It's not even a real thing. And I'm pretty sure they made it up mm. to start with. But in it, and like at the beginning, there's this whole thing, and the, the authors recognise that they hold varying degrees of marginalisation and privilege, which is a, a lot of waffling nonsense. And I'm going to run you through a couple of the new words that are, are clearly too harmful for TV. The first one is alien, which means you have to say newly arrived. Mm. Primitive is now mm -hmm. ancestral. My favourite, which is virgin, you have to say unmated, which it could be a bit awkward if you're talking about a rainforest. Discovered is identified. Uh, I was going to say, it's as if the EEP has opened up a thesaurus.com and discovered that synonyms exist. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't stand... All these words are super ugly. Like positionality, I have heard, actually, because that's one... I, I, as far as I know, nobody uses it outside university I have campuses. never heard it before, well, but these... I haven't spent a lot of time in university, so that might be why I've been protected. No, well, there was a young Canadian lady whose positionality was off. I mean, I hate it when that happens. I mean, you know things aren't going well when you're told your positionality is off. But the, the, if you, what is incredible to me, I mean, it's not a small thing, as George Orwell uh, got to in 1984, the use of language is what enables you to make arguments for this or that. If they ban all the words, you're not left with any tools with which even to protest the things you're doing to you. So the more they make these lists of words you can't use, the more, in fact, uh, they're telling you there are ideas you can't hold, there are thoughts you can't hold, and that's all deliberate because it's meant to prevent any pushback on all the craziness. Well, I was going to say the English language is beautiful because it is vast and diverse. And you know, if you can't think of a particular word when you're writing an article at 3 a.m., there's nothing really stopping you from making a brand new one up. And yet we've got these tiny mm. dictators that want to prune the English language to fit inside their little acceptable four by four safe space. I mean, I, I, I won't remember, uh, I was once abused for using the term blue to describe the ocean because apparently that was insensitive to depressed persons. Have you come across this? <laughs> no, well, I have come across it, but I've never entirely bought there. No one, um, ABBA, the great pop group ABBA, one of their last masterpieces, if I can recall it correctly, I must have had my seventh cigarette at half past two, and at the time I never even noticed I was blue. That's ABBA, who are actually more fluent in their second language of English than most of these Canadian professors are in what purports to be their first language. I've never, I've never really bought it. That's from, you were, you were saying you didn't like jazz. That's from uh, jazz songs. I got the blues 
blues real bad. Uh, now, you can have the blues. Uh, I woke up this morning, I got the blues real bad. Now, you can wake up this morning and have the blues real bad. And the Pacific Ocean can also wake up this morning and have the blues real bad. It's perfectly possible for one word to have uh, to have different cots. Oh, we, we can't we can't call the ocean blue, because uh, a depressed person might get even more depressed. She's depressed. She's already blue. The ocean's blue. They're in perfect sync. Well, I did have an entire mob of people writing me uh, saying how offended they were and how hurtful it was to these people that the people just casually using words like blue to, in their written language. Like, how dare authors <laughs> and fiction writers use words is basically what they're saying. But just in a more serious tone, within this language debate, we seem to have two bizarre and divergent demands on our speech today. And the first is what Jordan Peterson would call coerced speech, in which people are forced yes. to repeat words that they don't agree with or they're not comfortable with, and they, they're under you know, pain of fines and jail and all sorts of crazy things. Mm. Uh, this is like imaginary pronouns, for instance. Mm. And the second is the mm. mass censorship of speech if it offends somebody or the dominant approved thought that's going on, whether that's political or ideological or even a corporate interest. And I've been looking at it for a while, and do you think this could be a sign of a, a genuine religion or a cult that is growing within society? And maybe you and I just didn't get the God-bothering knock at the door. We haven't converted yet. Well, it, it's not really a religion because it's a religion without the possibility of forgiveness or redemption. Uh, that's to say, if you misgendered someone in 2003, there's no way back. You'll find, I don't know whether you did, but you'll find that if you were nominated uh, to sit in the cabinet in some position or other, and then somebody found your tweet from 2003 or whatever, uh, with, I'm not joking about that, with uh, Toby Young when, uh, in, in, in the UK, when he was offered some dreary educational consultancy job by Theresa May's ministry, they dug up something he'd said in 1984 to kill him. So it's not like a in, in religion, if you do something bad in 1984, there is the possibility of redemption. And this is, a, this is not a, it's a religion without the possibility of redemption, which, you know, frankly is evil, but it's serious. And almost everyone who matters in our society is going along with it, including, you know, men of science, including hospitals. Hospitals agree, oh, we're not putting male or female on the birth certificate anymore because that's for Junior to decide when he, she, they, sir, is, uh, is 27 or whatever. I mean, everyone who matters in our society has been intimidated into accepting all the rubbish. Well, I pity the poor sod given the task of going through my internet history that spans 15 years across many forums, most of it written at God knows what oh. hour of the morning, and uh, they're going to have some fun. And, uh, I, you know, I look forward mm. to it. It should be uh, interesting to see that published. But you had a good point earlier on when you said they control, like the word, words are powerful things. We have to remember that. That's why mm. dictatorships are afraid of them. They control what we say, how we act, and they can corrupt or more importantly, limit how we think. And so when descriptive words mm. are taken away from people, they lose the ability to describe the jail cells that they find themselves residing in. Would you say that's sort of true? 
Yeah, I think the idea is to wall off the, po the possibilities of, of debate. Uh, so that, for example, in, in, uh, in the United States, immigration is basically an undiscussable subject for most elected politicians because they're poll consultants and everything. Oh, well, when, when you hear, when you start using the word immigration, uh, people hear uh, racist and racism. So it's best for you not to bring it up at all. When you complain about uh, education unions, uh, teachers' unions, people think that you're anti-education. So our politicians are trained by all these people. There's a guy called Frank Luntz. I met him many times. He's a consultant to all the big shot politicians, a consultant. Uh, to, and he's always using this thing, words that work. And the, and the whole problem with that, words that work, is that there's ever fewer of them, and most of them are accepting of the leftist framing of debate. Uh, so, for example, the political class in virtually the entirety of the Western world will uh, not go... The idea that a sovereign nation uh, should operate in the interests of its existing citizens and that immigration is just another public policy uh, that should be decided as to whether it benefits the, uh, the, the populace at large, you can't even raise that because then people think you're some kind of white supremacist, which is why our politicians are such cowards uh, these days, including, I regret to say, uh, in the most recent uh, liberal ministry down under, um, which, you know, people complained about uh, John Howard and his gang uh, for not doing this and not doing that, but they, there's a there's attrition. Mrs. Thatcher always used to say that, you know, she didn't want to just go along with the ratchet effect of politics, where you're in office, but everything just gets a little more left, a little more left, a little more left. So this conservative government is less conservative than the conservative government of 10 years earlier and of uh, 25 years before that. And, and you see, and, and narrowing the vocabulary. Actually, I had this over 18C. Uh, I heard the then prime minister and the then, and his then deputy and the then attorney general tell me that it was just, it's too difficult to argue against 18C, which is your censorship law, because people think if you're opposed to it, you must be some kind of racist. That's how the left controls language. Well, it's very interesting that you should use the discussion of, of uh, illegal immigrants there, because in Australia, no one is seeking asylum in Australia unless a volcano erupts and takes out New Zealand and people are swimming across the shore mm. distance. Then we don't have asylum seekers. Yeah. We've got illegal migrants. But they took out the word illegal migrants from all of our press and discussions. So, so suddenly they're not illegal migrants. They have to be asylum seekers, even if that's not technically true. And that's how they shift political discussions away. And it becomes yep. impossible to go back and say, hang on a second, these people are breaking the law because they're not, they're asylum seekers. Yeah, no, I, I always think with these things, it's, it's best to just go back to first principles. I had an Iranian lady on my show uh, last year sometime, and she'd been booked uh, because she'd been detained on Manus 
island, uh, Papua New Guinea, by your evil fascist government who'd uh, been brutalizing her on Manus Island or whatever. And that's what they wanted me to talk to her about, how terrible... She was a, a supposed Iranian filmmaker or... Uh, theatre director or something like that. And how, what is, what is up with the Australian government torturing Iranian theatre directors all day long on Manus Island? And uh, I didn't go, I didn't sort of buy that. I wanted to know why somehow someone fleeing Iran winds up in Australia, because that doesn't seem to me to be a normal refugee situation. It's and quite a, it's quite a trek. I'm... There's quite a few connecting flights and uh, long haul treks in that one. Yeah, and I, I did. I she'd gone on. She'd 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 gone to. I think it's the Australian consulate in Tehran or whatever it was. And they said, oh, no, we can't give you a visa. That'll be three years or whatever. So she said, oh, so I had no choice but to flee across the Indian subcontinent and then down to Indonesia and then get a... And, pay. and I'm thinking, what, what is... You know, the again, it's the left's ability to... So now we have, for example, refugees... A refugee is supposed to be fleeing something. The 10% of the population of Albania is now living in the United Kingdom, not because there's any reason to flee Albania. It's all very nice and they've got vacation hotels and things. But just because once you label yourself a refugee, there's no way to be denied entry. And again, it's this, the left controls language on almost every front now. And it's very difficult. And once you accept those terms, then you're screwed. There's no way you can win because you're just basically the designated loser in the argument. Yeah, and you, I don't really buy completely your argument that this is not some kind of religious behaviour. Uh, I spend a lot of time online and I see how the, the younger generation behaves with language. And as far as I can tell, hashtags and online slurs have become a form of religious chant where everyone rushes to the temple of Twitter to mm. repeat their praise to whatever woke God is closest. And I don't blame the millennials or whatever the ones underneath them are, Zoomers or whatever. Humans love to do this. We're addicts to the general madness. But journalists yeah. are meant to hold the line and tear down the curtain. Uh, you were effectively cancelled from GB News for upsetting the new religion. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I'm, I don't disagree with you that it's a uh, that it is a kind of religion, but it's not a proper religion. It's a, as I said, there's no redemption, but there is apostasy, uh, and 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 there are heretics. So that if you are like J.K. Rowling and you don't accept that uh, somebody who's hung like a stallion uh, should be moved into the women's prison. Uh, simply because he chooses to be, he chose to identify as a woman 10 minutes before check-in at the jailhouse. Um, that's, uh, that, that uh, and you have to buy that. And if you don't buy it, like J.K. Rowling, you're an apostate, you're a heretic, and you have to be at least figuratively burned at the stake. Um, but if you recall the Charlie Hebdo fellows who do actually, you know, they, when you're condemned to death, by those guys, they do actually kill you. 
Uh, and it's easy to say, oh, well, just banning you, uh, getting you fired, getting your books unpublished uh, isn't as bad as just doing the Charlie Hebdo thing and putting a bullet in you. Uh, well, they're actually on the same continuum. The one set of fellas just haven't got there yet. And there's, you know, there's a lot of that about. I'm a, I'm a free speech absolutist because the last three years, if they've demonstrated nothing else, they've demonstrated the hell you make when you shrink uh, the bounds of public discourse as narrowly as they were shrunk in the UK, in Australia, in Canada, in the US and on the continent. I mean, there's been nothing like it. Uh, it it's, a, it's been a fabulous experiment in what happens when you only have state approved speech and the result is a ruined economy and a big pile of corpses and you would think that people would uh, at least accept that after the last three years we need to widen the debate well a lot of the reason you've got so many australian followers is because you were challenging almost alone you had a few friends there in the uk but you were basically challenging one of the most protected narratives in media, which was COVID. And there was an awful lot of money tied mm. up in COVID. And you've fallen afoul of Ofcom, which is the UK regulator. Mm. What I find interesting looking at the situation now, and I'm not entirely sure that the gravity of this has dawned on Ofcom or other publications and media broadcasters, but Ofcom has effectively spent the last three years uh, regulating in the UK, effectively mm. enforcing fake news and disinformation because the government, yeah. uh, an expert line on COVID, has been proven manifestly wrong, which makes a mockery mm. of all this, oh, we're here to protect speech and protect public health and safety, but who is protecting public health and safety from Ofcom? No, they issued a so-called guidance uh, in whatever it was, March 2020, ex uh, just ever so politely suggesting in the way your loan shark might with a tire iron in the back alley uh, when you leave your place of business at night might do, that you might, yeah, it's a pretty nice little TV station you got there, you might want to think twice before countering the government narrative. That's actually the, uh, and it was, uh, it was actually an old uh, BBC uh, uh, lady, uh, I shouldn't say she's an old BBC, she's a delightful lady, but she's as mainstream as she gets. She's been on the BBC for years and years and years. Um, and she was the one who, who said, who drew my attention to this. And if you know anything, I think there is, uh, there is not a lot of courage out there ultimately, because it's hard work and it's thankless. And you know that, Alexandra, there's all kinds of people in Australia, you put your head above the parapet on something like 18C and you get it smashed down. So the easiest thing is self-censorship. It's the easiest thing to do. You say, oh, no, 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 I, uh, no I, nobody's complained um, about me to uh, this or that body. I've just, uh, I'm just not terribly interested in COVID policy, so I've decided I'm going to do another feature on Harry and Meghan today. It's so easy to tell yourself that. And, uh, and that's, that's, what you, that's what you, now, you can have uh, state regulatory reasons or you can be like uh, America where, 
you know, Roger Ailes famously told Robert F. Kennedy Jr. that in a non-election year, 76% of advertising on Fox News is uh, is from big pharmaceuticals. So the, the but. What I don't think any of us realized until these last three years is actually what an effective tool public health is, the cover of public health for total societal control. And I, I see stories, what was it, the, the young lady a couple of months back uh, who the coroner ruled in Australia, I forget which part of Australia, ruled that she died because she got the Moderna shot. Why can't we talk about that? Okay, there may be lots of young ladies in their 20s who didn't die because of the Moderna shot, but when one does, and she dies, you know, 60 years short of when she might have expected to die, why can't we talk about that? Why? It's, it's, there's bad news, but there's bad news made worse by state censorship. Well, it's worse for conservatives because we get censored twice. The first is when we decide to become mm. a conservative commentator, and that immediately burns pretty much every other business bridge that we can go into. Mm. I can never get hired anywhere, not even in a bookshop or stacking shelves at uh. Coles. I'm done for. And then, uh. heaven forbid, a conservative commentator like yourself actually takes a stand against a difficult narrative. Well, then you run the risk of being mm. chased out of media as well. So they really really do have a, a hold over us. And I was listening, or anybody really, who was listening to the London Calling mm. podcast, which I'm sure uh, you would have as well, yeah. they would have heard James Dellenpole quite irritably say to Toby Young that I thought you were a journalist when he seemed to fall mm. down on the side of Ofcom regulation, effectively defending not only the existence of Ofcom, but the way in which places like GB News have sort of facilitated them and allowed them to stay there. Now, Dellingpole, in my opinion, quite rightly pointed out that the UK is heading the way of some kind of uh, establishing an authoritarian state or deploying powers of censorship like we see in the Soviet Union. And I think he said, I believe it was as if we were behind an iron curtain. So I thought I'd ask you, do you feel as if you've been living <laughs> under an iron curtain? Can you feel the weight of it coming down on you? <laughs> Well, I think I think he's not wrong about. It. Incidentally, uh, Toby Young has doubled down on that. He's written a piece that I actually saw on your own website. It's uh, no, at the Spectator website. Ha hang on, not my <laughs> website. Okay, my parent uh, website. Uh, okay, okay, uh, I'll buy that. Here's where I think. Uh, here's where I think he's he's gone wrong. When I and this applies to you know when I used to have discussions with. Uh, Tony Abbott and George Brandis and uh, Julie Bishop about this issue, but also back in Canada. In Canada, um, uh, I wrote for Maclean's, which is like the dentist's waiting room magazine. It's not a controversial thing. It's not a right-wing thing. It's as mainstream as you can get. And I was taken, uh, they published an excerpt of my book, and I was taken uh, to three human rights commissions, the Federal Human Rights Commission, the Ontario Human Rights Commission, the British Columbia Human Rights Commission. And so we have a conversation, the, all the, because McLean's is owned by Rogers, which is one of the biggest and blandest mega corporations in Canada. Uh, Ted Rogers, great guy, very talented guy, good businessman, but not a conservative. So we have this big we have this big conference call. The editor, our fabulous QC, 
or Casey, as we now have to say, although probably with you Republican uh, types in Oz, uh, Casey isn't catching on too much. And, uh, no, they're not too keen have, on the uh, Casey thing. I, we're sort of sticking to the Queen. We've still got the Queen on our $5 notes. We, we're clutching on. Yeah, no, no, I know. He's, uh, I know all these little death by a thousand cuts. It's a pathetic thing. Go for it or don't go for it, but don't just snip at it bit by bit. But, but we had, so we had this big conference call and some senior executive vice president of whatever was on the line. And he goes, well, what's the end game here with these three suits? And I said, the end game uh, there was a, an, a, a pause. So I jumped in just to fill the pause. And I said, the end game is to get the law repealed so the Canadian state is out of the censorship business. And there was the, this silence, and then the senior executive vice president of whatever said, OK, I'll buy that, and that's what we did. And that was my objective with 18C. And where Toby Young is all nuts is that, uh, is that that's what should be the objective here. The objective should be to get Ofcom out of the editorial censorship game. And instead, he happens to be the general secretary of the Free Speech Union. And, and his thing is, his rallying cry, he's the free speech champion, his rallying cry is free speech, free speech for all, as long as it operates within the government regulators approved limits. Well, I can't see myself writing a check to any organization that faint-hearted. I'm sorry, but I think if you're, you know, it's either the free speech union or it's the government approved speech union, but it can't be both. And that's where Toby, uh, you know, all these people, uh, Tony Abbott, I'm not giving anything away here, I don't think, because uh, it, was, it was late at night in a restaurant when we were both fairly well lubricated. Uh, but Tony Abbott said to me, uh, free speech is not a first order issue. And I said to him, it is a first order. It's the first order issue because it's the one that enables you to argue about all the other issues. Well, I am a fellow free speech absolutist, which is why I take you right to the line of acceptability on your fabulous show when you invite me on. And uh, no doubt the likes of Ofcom, well, a bugger Ofcom as I prefer to call them, they clearly enjoy <laughs> their power. But very few people mm. talk about where this sort of sen uh, sensorial power is coming from. Now, when I was born in the late mm. 80s, the issue of free speech had been settled. It never occurred to me that I'd mm. be standing here with a, a slightly bent pitchfork in 2023, holding mm. the line with the rest of the peasants against tyrannical mm. speech overlords. But social, and you know, yeah. I, I actually spent a long time with the birth of social media and it began its life as a thriving beacon of, uh, beacon of freedom and art and creativity. It was like the old school Parisian dream back mm. in the early days of the internet. Mm. It was beautiful. Mm. And politicians had no mm. idea how to access it, which I think was very important to its success. Mm. But I am prepared to acknowledge in hindsight uh, that the age of censorship might be in part social media's fault because its platforms generated mm. these huge user bases and people mm. became the products or eyeballs, as we refer to them, in business. Mm. And that's social media companies then sold the advertising agencies the people. And pretty soon marketing yep. companies weren't satisfied with having customers. Their corporate overlords wanted to manipulate the market mm. and to coerce people into buying their products. 
and weeding out mm. anyone who said things like, this product is rubbish to their 400,000 yep. followers. And so this power of mm. advertising went both ways where random online users suddenly were wielding huge amounts of influence that could damage the commercial interests of corporations and mm. later political interests, sort of like the reverse influences we see on Instagram. Mm. Now to summarize, this culminated into situations where Big Pharma was funding Twitter while Twitter enforced mm. censorship rules that basically outlawed yep. criticism of vaccines, including deleting victims from the platform. Mm. And these victims mm. were salvaged by you on your show, thankfully. Is there a similar dynamic <laughs> at play within TV media where networks are beholden to the feelings of advertising companies? Well, I think it's slight, I think it's slight, you're right about what was so extraordinary to discover is that these, uh, because uh, some of the, for example, the, the vaccine widows that I've had on uh, the Mark Stein show, uh, you know, they would post some, they would like post a photograph of their late husband uh, in his 30s, full of life, uh, two weeks before he took the vaccine and died. And it would be labelled uh, by Facebook or Twitter as fake news. In other words, they they had take, they had took the position that we've looked into it and your husband didn't really die. You're not really a widow. Uh, this is fake news. Pay no attention to it. That's, um, pretty, that's pretty dark and black comedy right there that the person who you know who died is. is fake news. That couldn't possibly have happened yeah. to you. No, and, 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 that's, and that's extraordinary. Now, then you have, I think, what happens in, in, in too much of the media, where, as I said, uh, there's, uh, particularly now, because, as you say, face, with Facebook and Twitter, basically, we are the product, and uh, they are manufactured at Facebook. Uh, their product is uh, people setting up websites with uh, cat pictures on it. And then uh, the guys who run the thing think, well, wait a minute, uh, the cat picture thing is all very well, but maybe we can also use it to advance the issue of transgender bathrooms or whatever. And so you have these companies which are now bigger than, they're, they're bigger than countries. You know, when, when Zuckerberg meets the prime minister of Slovenia, he's the big shot not whoever the prime minister of Slovenia is. And this, this is a, uh, and compared to say Rupert Murdoch, uh, you know, I, I, Rupert uh, can be a pleasant chap and all the rest of it, but he's thinking small. You've got to think, who, who, Rupert uh, run, runs all these newspapers and he, and he sends uh, sleazy, slimy reporters out and about to doorstep people in order to have influence in the world's affairs. And on the other hand, here's a guy who sets up a forum that makes it easy for you to upload your cat pictures and he winds up running the world, not Rupert. So I think old school media... Uh, is is has actually been suckered by these new guys. You've got to appreciate that humanity decided to elevate the guy with the cat memes to global ruler. <laughs> That's it's so very human of us to do. No wonder no aliens come here. Why would you come to Earth? We're clearly going to blow ourselves <laughs> up. But you will love this. Yeah. In Australia, we have these online groups. Uh, they call themselves the Mad Effing Witches. That's not us. 
That was mm. a self-identification. Mm. And they specialize in harassing advertisers to drop conservative commentators, robbing yep. news networks of their funds. And then these networks turn around and they fire any truth-telling presenters that they have. They duct tape the rest. And then they sit there and hope that the mob will leave them alone if they cough up enough of this activist-approved yeah. narrative. So the question that both I want answered and I hear all the time when I'm speaking to people is can journalism survive this environment or are you a critically endangered species about to feature on a David Attenborough documentary? Well, I think journalism is pretty much uh, dead. I don't really like getting into uh, journalists, so-called journalistic ethics because I think the idea of paying a quarter million dollars a year to go to Columbia Journalism School and become a master's in journalism ethics is completely ridiculous. Uh, you know, paying a quarter million dollars to do a job that, if you're lucky, pays $23,000 a year these days. Um, but I will say, on my day, for my days in Fleet Street, the one thing I miss was uh, is the, the so-called contrarian street that a certain type of old Fleet Street hand had. So, uh, for a, example, when uh, Mrs. Thatcher was defenestrated, uh, everybody was going, oh, thank God, uh, she's gone. She totally outlived uh, time. Uh, it's fantastic. She's gone. She's great. Uh, like my uh, a friend of mine, Frank Johnson, he then immediately started saying, no, no, this is a huge mistake. The Tories will live to regret this. The, the, the weather vane... Uh, moves and suddenly people start saying, we need to bring Mrs. Thatcher back. These guys are rubbish. We should never have got rid of her. And he immediately then switches just... And that contrarian streak, that could, there, there, was a, there was a columnist at the Evening Standard who would, who would begin his columns with things like, I was listening uh, to... Uh, I, was list, I, I was listening to Down Your Way on Radio 4 the other day. And you would never know from that opening sentence whether the second sentence would be, what a beloved national institution this lovely program is, or aren't we all totally sick of this boring crap week after week for decades on end? And that contrarian streak served... Uh, served people well. And it actually helped. One thing I like about you, I, uh, and it's been a very pleasant discovery for me when I, when I found you, is I, like, I love the way you write. So I just started reading one paragraph, and the next paragraph was even more readable. So I thought, I'll go on to the third paragraph, and that was pretty good. And then you wobbled a bit in the fourth paragraph, but you recovered in the fifth. And, uh, and so I stuck with you to the end. This, that... Uh, that's partly connected with the contrarian streak, which involves thinking, wait a minute, do I really want to go along? Do, really, do I really want to be the uh, 5,789th columnist to jump on the bandwagon? Or do I want to actually step back and think, hang on, maybe there's another point of view on this? And nobody does that now. There are correct views on uh, gender identity, there are correct views on climate change, there are correct views on Islam, there are correct views on Zelensky, there are correct uh, views on everything. And, uh, and so that contrarian streak, which was the essence of a lively free press, is dead. Well, the only English teacher I ever had that was any good told me that anything worth writing is an argument. 
and I'm not seeing a lot of arguments yeah. written in the press these days. They are mostly standing there basking in whatever they're told that mm. they should be approving of. I've always been a little bit more mm. disagreeable. You and I are going to have chats about your mm. criticism of my, uh, my piece there. <laughs> <Were we? laughs> no, only, only the, whatever. I think it was the fourth paragraph. That's the only one. But, uh, but go to, ahead. To maybe, be... maybe I, but, you know, but that is why the, the writing, regardless of the politics, these newspapers are so badly written now. You take publications that used to be famous for good writing, like the Atlantic Monthly or, uh, you know, a newspaper I helped start, The Independent in London. People... Uh, liked it because it was a well-written paper. No one says that about these things anymore. The less they think out their positions, the worse the writing gets. They're unreadable, you, a lot of this You slide. know what they are? They're dull, which is the greatest crime mm. that news can possibly be. I wouldn't yeah. mind if yeah. they were out there and outrageous, as long as they are entertaining, but there are no entertaining yeah. writers left. That's a side point, but yeah. it is kind of distressing that journalism has reached this point yeah. where you're more likely to fall asleep reading the newspaper than watching yeah. the TV, and it's, it's kind of... The, the era of great mm. journalism died before I got here, mm. and it's distressing to see mm. that. But just a final point yeah. on the power behind censorship. So our audience understands, in some cases, we are talking about trillions of dollars holding mm. the rope on the censorship mm. guillotine. And forget journalists, but can clusters of voices in the public win against this kind of power? Because my fear is that there is this generation coming up underneath us. They're, they're like zombies clawing their way out of the ground. Mm that they don't want free speech. They've been reared on this line that free speech is evil or dangerous or racist. Mm. And as both journalists mm. and consumers of news, they'll be cheering off come on and they'll be demanding that parliament yep. hand these guys more power. No, I think that's that's true. Uh, whatever it was now, 15 years ago, something like that, um, a Canadian comrade of mine, Ezra Levant, was hauled up before the Alberta Human Rights Commission, and he was invited by the commissar to make an opening statement. So he said, "Well, I don't, uh, I don't recognise uh, myself as being bound by your law." Uh, I, uh, I'm bound by Her Majesty the Queen's law and yours is a perversion of that law. And uh, then he stopped and she said to him reflexively, well, you're entitled to your opinion. No, that cliche is no longer operative, which is why you don't hear it anymore. You're all, well, you're entitled. I, I don't think there was a moon landing. I think it was fate in the desert in Utah. Well, you're entitled to your opinion. Nobody says that anymore and nobody under... 20, 30, 40, 57, 62, whatever you want to say, in particular says that anymore, because as you say, they think there is a, they, they think the great questions have been settled, there's a correct view on them, and that your opinion is harmful, so you're no longer entitled to it. And that's behind Section 13, we got rid of it in Canada, Section 18C, which we didn't get rid of, uh, and, uh, and it's also behind Ofcom and, the, uh, and Full Fact, which is this cabal of woke billionaires who run the fact-checking on the internet. Um, and one thing I like about Oz, by the way, is you have like, which is, you know, 
true in Canada too, the, the chippy post-colonial thing. So that if you discovered, for example, that 18C, uh, the guys behind all that stuff were being fully funded by, you know, a Marquis and a, a 15th Earl sitting in London, you'd be all, wow, we're Australians. Why do we want to put up with a bunch of uh, snot-nosed poms telling us what we can put in our papers? But oddly enough, when, it, when it's in the UK and a bunch of snot-nosed woke billionaires in the United States uh, fund Ofcom and serve as Ofcom's fact-checkers, uh, all, uh, the, every English, Scottish, Irish, Welshman is perfectly okay with that. It's very bizarre. I'm going to pull you up on that one, Mark, because our diehard Republicans over here are pretty keen, and I, I dare say madly in love with the European globalists. They'd love to be told mm. what to do by these kids at the World Economic Forum and the mm. United Nations. But... Look, you've been very generous with your time. Leave us with a little bit of hope, I beg you. What has Twitter's liberation under Elon Musk mm. taught us about free speech? Well, uh, I will say that personally, I'm super grateful to it because I was shadow, 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 shadow banned. So, so people would say, oh, Stein, you haven't shown up in my Twitter timeline since 2009. What happened? Well, what happened is that, uh, is that bit by bit, Elon Musk dismantled all the, all the censorship. And I think that does show, I mean, he hasn't got, he's not, fully in control of it. I mean, I still hear from people who complain that their tweet has been marked as misleading or whatever. But um, basically, that's shown that you can actually reclaim these things. And the important thing, too, is it's not, you know, it's worth just not taking it from these guys. They're flying around most of the time, you know, uh, Bill Gates is in a plane most of the time, and every so often he'll land somewhere and he'll meet the, uh, the health secretary of Belgium or whatever. But most of the time he's up there in the sky. He has no idea about what life is like down here on Earth. And that's the advantage. You know, we live here and those guys at Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and these other crazies, they no longer do. And that's still an advantage, having your feet on the ground. Well, thank you so much, Mark Stein. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on my show. And you can find Mark at steinonline.com. And why not join us for a cruise in July mm. where we tour the Adriatic? No vaccine passports, mm. no ridiculous rat tests. And that's all from us mm. here today. I'm Alexandra Marshall. Catch you next week.